Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the Rock Chalk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. I am joined tonight for what we're calling our season finale by Steve Fetch and Kyle Davis. How, how are you guys doing tonight? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. All right. So it's been a little while. I think it's been about four weeks since we actually recorded an episode. Um, a lot of that was by design. I had a few things going on personally, uh, but we also kind of wanted to wait, um, kind of give some people some time to digest the season finale, that horrible game that we had in the Final Four, um, you know, kind of reset so we could get a little bit of perspective and talk about the season as a whole um, in terms of our wrap-up. And then, of course, you know, there was a bunch of news about the, the FBI investigation, which we'll get to here, um, and then rec- recruiting information, uh, waiting on Romeo Ling for his decision. So a lot has kind of happened. It, it just kind of kept going until it made sense to wait now our wrap-up. So this being our, our season finale, we are going to be talking and kind of wrapping up everything that happened with basketball. Uh, we are going to kind of maybe look ahead just a little bit, not not a ton. Um, we aren't really going to plan on talking about any football unless something kind of comes up organically. Um, even though this is the season finale, we will be talking some football throughout the summer. Um, Mike and I are already kind of planning out how that's going to happen. So we won't we won't be going completely dark over the summer, but we probably will only be going about every other week or so. So um, just programming note for, for all you guys out there listening. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, obviously, the season didn't end the way we wanted it to with a absolute pasting by Villanova in the Final Four. Um, there's not really a lot to say about that game, though, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there unless something like comes up in the rest of our conversation. But now that we've all had a little bit of time to digest it. Um, I, I want to know what what do you guys think was the most memorable moment of the season? And we'll go ahead and start oh, with Kyle. That's a tough one. 
yeah, you're putting me on the spot uh, <laughs> real early. Um, I mean, I guess if you're looking at just probably one singular moment, it's I mean, does it have to be C's three against Duke that basically sealed a Final Four berth? Um, if we're thinking, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, if we if we think where um, there's kind of a turning point in the season, I thought there was a couple of them. I thought, uh, you know, Spee again, his three against Nebraska to win it uh, early on after that two game losing streak, uh, kind of right of the ship for a little bit, and then that. Um, that West Virginia game on the road still sticks out to me just because that was the first of what would become kind of a uh, calling card for this team of the no one is picking you to win uh, games that they came out and, and even came back from a, of a pretty rough uh, halftime death. Uh, uh, oh, man, I'm losing my word. Yeah, so basically, yeah, the, the word definitely, yeah, there, yeah. there it is. Yeah, it's uh, – yeah, what time is it? Uh, so <laughs> – yeah, I think, you know, you've probably got to pick a moment. I don't think you can find a bigger shot than, than Svi against Duke. But um, there was quite a few great individual performances. And then, yeah, there was a couple times where on the ropes, uh, you know, like the Nebraska game and some others where when this team was really questioned, uh, they came through with some big wins that were not by any means pretty all the time. But uh, that's where, you know, this team is going to get, because of uh, Bill Selford, the toughness uh, discussion is going to be thrown around with this team a lot. And uh, there were a couple of those big moments that really showed this team's toughness. Yeah. Fetch, anything you want to jump in with? Or, or did he kind yeah, of take the You know, I think uh, just the Duke game as a whole um, probably stands out to me when I, when I think back uh, on the season. And, you know, Malik Newman going nuts in overtime. And, and you're right, that, that's V3. Um, Grayson Allen, uh, you know, missing that shot that went in and out twice uh, and seemed like about 30 times. Um, the two other games I think that probably stand out to me, uh, one, the the Big 12 title game against West Virginia when uh, they came out and, and obviously West Virginia kind of got back into the game a few times, but Kansas never really was threatened. Um, and to put in that kind of a performance without Yudoka Azubuki I thought was pretty special. Uh, and the other one probably is that uh, away game uh, against Texas Tech where uh, it was down to the wire. You know, they're playing a, a very good Texas Tech team. Uh, and really just every time they needed a play, uh, they made one. And, and really every time they needed a shot, you know, Devontae Graham made one. He made a couple of NBA threes in that game. And then he had that one circus shot uh, in the lane where I don't, I still don't know how that one went in. Um, yeah. But that was just a, a great effort. Um, and, you know, comes on the on the heels of the the other game, I think that probably stands out as that 30-point win against Oklahoma. But um, for me, it was definitely the, the Big 12 title game, uh, the Texas Tech game, and um, obviously, you know, the Elite Eight game to finally get over that hump. And, and you know, I was looking at some stuff earlier in, in preparation for the podcast here, and Kansas is the only team who's made the last three Elite Eights so even without that win against Duke, I mean, I think that there would have been a lot of sense of accomplishment just being the only program that's done that. But definitely there was a sense of um, when they won that game, you know, they finally got over the hump, and it was really good vindication for DeMonte Graham, who had had a couple of rough games in the Elite Eight the last couple of years. Um, so to, to see him, and he didn't have a great game against Duke, but just to see him, you know, win in the lead eight game I think was pretty special so those are the ones that are going to stand out to me yeah I was going to say he didn't really have that great of a game at all 
Um, in in the Elite Eight, he was four of ten, you know, shooting. So it wasn't it wasn't really that great, but Malik Newman kind of bailed him out there. But yeah, I mean, I I, I have to agree with a lot of the the, the moments that you guys have pointed out. Um, a, a couple other ones that I kind of that kind of jumped out to me. I think um, that first really close win um, at home. Well, the the back to back against Iowa State and Kansas State really kind of set the tone for the entire season. Um, and I think it was perfectly encapsulated at that final moment where Grayson Allen missed that shot against, you know, when we were playing against Duke, because it kind of was a, a microcosm of the entire season. The fact that, you know, Kansas had to get extremely fortunate. A lot of times things were out of their hands in terms of, you know, their own destiny and within the entire season, um, you know, and it very easily could have gone a different way with all the, the roster issues that Kansas had this year, uh, with how strong a lot of the other teams in the Big 12 were this year, you know, we very easily could be looking at a team that didn't win the Big 12, that didn't run to a conference tournament title, that didn't get that one seed, and then wasn't able to kind of close out these guys' career with a Final Four. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think, and, and and I'll kind of open this over over to you guys as well. But I, I mean, I, I think we've kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, the final four that they got to, I, I don't necessarily see that as just an accomplishment of this team. You know, it seems to be a culmination of the last three or four years, um, you know, with, with Frank Mason not being able to get there, um, but handing it off to a very capable Devontae Graham. And, and then they finally willed their way to a win, um, you know, to, to, to get to the final four. How I mean, how big for the program in general and for all the guys that have been through here in the last four years when Devontae Graham's been here, do you think that that final four was for everyone? That should let you go first. Okay. Um, for me, you know, I, I don't think that it's uh, a huge deal just because, like I said, I mean, they're, they're consistently um, knocking on the door every year now. Um, and when you, when you recruit like they do and when you have a uh, coaching staff who can develop guys like they can, uh, obviously that's going to happen. So, um, you know, the, the three straight elite eights, uh, and, and honestly it, you know, could have been at least four and five years if Joel Embiid would have stayed healthy, but that's probably for a different podcast. Um, but, but so to me, it, it's more of a, just like a vindication of the fact that, you know, Kansas fans always say, you know, that they're close and that they're, you know, the best program in the country or, or definitely close to it. Um, but, yeah, to, to the outside world, I think it's definitely some really good vindication that, you know, to to come in and uh, beat two ACC teams, even though, you know, one was Clemson. But uh, to to beat <laughs> Clemson and then Duke in the Elite Eight, and Duke was obviously the, the preseason number one. They were, uh, you know, one of the biggest favorites uh, in terms of national media, in terms of Ken Palm, in terms of, you know, the betting markets and everything to win the national title. Uh, so to beat them was great, um, you know, to, to fight back after a season where they lost three times at Allen Fieldhouse, which is uh, insane to me, um, and to come out and still win the Big 12 regular season title, the Big 12 tournament title, and then get to the Final Four. Uh, definitely, I think, uh, is a, a validation of the, the way things are going with the program and, and the way that they're, um, I don't know if you can call them trending upwards because they're always really good, but um, not not really conceding an inch with um, 
everything that went on with the Billy Preston situation and uh, having to deal with, you know, Kazabuki being hurt and uh, having to deal with, you know, Malik Newman not being great right away. And, and it just seems like there's there's nothing really that can, uh, you know, phase Bill Self and, and phase Kansas. It just seems like they're always going to find a way to compete and always find a way to, to get to uh, the second weekend, at least, of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this did more – not necessarily more, but for individual legacies than the team. I mean, this secured Devontae Graham's uh, kind of place in Kansas lore, just getting that Final Four on top of it. Uh, Bill Self adding his third, obviously, just builds to his Hall of Fame uh, resume. Uh, and I kind of am on uh, the side here with, like, the way that the NCAA tournament and the single elimination is such a crapshoot, and it's all about matchups. And, you know, Kansas team last year with Frank Mason and Josh Jackson against that Oregon team probably should have won this team going up against that Duke team I think it's probably more uh it's probably more difficult to have the the three elite eights in a row than having the one final four out of that just because the way the the ball falls which we saw with Grace Allen anyway I mean that thing goes another half inch uh and and Kansas is out again but I think just the consistency that they've been able to build uh, roster turnover every year and keeping back uh, in that spot with a chance to go to the Final Four the last three years uh, really says a lot about the team. And then, yeah, just making it over that hump did a lot for, I mean, it did a lot for Devontae's, uh, you know, legacy. It did a lot for Malik Newman's draft stock. Um, it did a lot for Bill. It did a lot for, I would say, Udoka, except that then the Villanova game probably, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, might have been the reason why he'll probably get feedback to come back another year. But, uh, yeah, I'd say on an individual level, it was pretty important. On uh, As a team and program level, I think those uh, those three straight is probably uh, more impressive just given what you have to go up against. Yeah, I mean, I, I I will say in terms of like overall program pedigree, I don't think that making the Final Four is not, is quite as important. Um, you know, I, I do think though it, it it's kind of vindication for Bill uh, the fact that he was able to finally get there with a team that probably wasn't as talented and and as likely to get there as you would normally think. So that in and of itself kind of helps him out. Obviously, it's huge for Devontae's legacy for for Svi for a lot of the players that were on this team. I do think in, in some ways it kind of also helps with Frank Mason's legacy. Um, just, you know, how much of that mentality that he was able to instill and, and, and kind of help Devontae Graham develop. Um, you know, Frank, Frank Mason wasn't on the team this year, but you could still kind of feel the presence of what he did last year. Um, a lot of guys that, you know, a lot of our, our, our seniors are the guys that, that played with Frank last year. We're talking about, you know, how that mentality kind of bled over. Um, you know, and, and knowing that they've had a guy, you know, that, you know, as small as Frank Mason is, but as powerful as he has been and as successful as he's been, um, was it was a good way for them to kind of build on, on what he did last year. And this kind of is just the culmination of everything that those guys have been building on for the last few years. So, um, but yeah, so, so let's go ahead and jump ahead. And since you brought it up, Kyle, you know, obviously our, our next topic, I think, is to talk about the guys that are leaving. Um whether they're for sure going to be gone next year or in the case of Yudoka, I think we all agree that he's probably going to be coming back to school. So, um, but let's, let's, let's actually go ahead and start with Yudoka. Um, and, and I want to talk specifically about that point you brought up actually about how the Villanova game might have affected his, 
his decision or, or the feedback that he's going to get. I would make the argument that I don't think that that game really had too much of an impact. Either way, he was probably going to test the waters. He probably was not going to be, um, you know, mocked very highly in the in in the mock drafts. And, and I'm guessing he probably would have gotten very similar feedback. Um, it's not like that, you know, that game showed a weakness that he hadn't been showing all along or anything like that. I mean, I think I think he was very clearly going to go test the waters. And he was probably going to be advised to come back and, and work on some additional things. So do you, do you guys have any different thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think you're you're right that, like, um, you know, it for one, there is absolutely no reason, there's no downside to him going into the draft, getting that valuable feedback from people who have uh, much better credibility than the three of us right, um, right. and not hiring an agent and coming back. There's absolutely no problem, so why would you not take advantage, first and foremost, same thing that Speed did last year, and we see, you know, what that did for him. Um, and I agree that, yeah, these were problems, you know, his – I've heard the term a couple times being used by people that he's kind of a dinosaur in today's NBA, as in like, uh, you know, a lot of NBA guys are able to stretch it out with their jumper to 10 to 15 feet, be able to guard on the perimeter a little bit better as a big man. I think you're right that those were things that he was always going to struggle with. But then again, you know, having that put on such a visible display and such a big stage maybe just drove the the point home a little bit more, if that makes any sense. Um, but, yeah, I'm guessing the feedback is going to be, uh, you know, get a little bit more of that, uh, maybe a couple more post moves, mid-range jump shot, and then he just needs to be a little bit of a better rebounder, get, go from six or seven rebounds a game to eight or nine, and that'll make a, a pretty big difference. Yeah, I, I think if anything, that last game really just kind of solidified in his own mind, gave him a really, you know, fresh example of the the issues he has with his game, like what he can work on. Um, I, I think he would have gotten the same feedback regardless, but I think it, it, it definitely made a big impression in his mind after that game. So um, in a way, yeah, it's probably like if he wasn't going to be able to be good enough to go, that's probably the kind of game that makes it like crystallizes that, that decision for him. But like you said, there's absolutely no downside to going and getting that feedback from the NBA. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's honestly, I'm surprised that, that, there's not more people that do it that way, although there are a ton at this point. So, Fetch, any thoughts on that? I think, uh, you know, one thing that probably gets overlooked a little bit in the analysis of that game is that he very clearly was still, you know, hurt. Um, so that really impacted his mobility, and, and obviously Villanova, you know, would have attacked him uh, and, and made him, you know, get out on the perimeter regardless. But it was just an even easier uh, moved by them with the fact that, you know, his knee was very clearly still bothering him. And um, I, I don't really think, you know, in terms of the NBA, I don't think he's going to have uh, as much of an issue getting out and guarding on the perimeter as a lot of other people seem to. And I, I certainly could be wrong, obviously, but I think that the big thing he needs to do is uh, just to get in better shape and get in, you know, NBA shape. Um, you know, you see, even when his knee was healthy, you know, he couldn't really get up and down the floor uh, too many times without really sucking wind there, um, which uh, I can I can empathize with. That was like me in in a rural basketball. But um, you know, when you when you ask him to like switch out on the perimeter and stuff, usually he does a, a pretty good job um, for a while. It's just a matter of not being able to do it every single possession. So in that sense, I think he he might be okay, and and he obviously. Uh, has shown a lot of potential uh, as a rim protector and really improved in that area as the season went along. And then offensively, 
you know, he doesn't really have uh, a jump shot, but I, I think the best way to learn how to shoot a jumper is actually in the NBA when you can get there and just shoot all day and not have to worry about going to class and not have to really uh, worry about doing anything else. And, and uh, you know, if I were him, um, I mean, I don't know that he would get drafted or not, but I, I wouldn't really be uh, surprised or disappointed in him uh, if he did leave. Um, if he found a team that would, you know, guarantee him a, a spot on the roster or a spot in the G League where he can just, um, you know, work on those areas of his game nonstop and, and almost take, like, kind of a redshirt year. Um, because, yeah, I, I do think, you know, the way he plays right now, his game is a little bit uh, dinosaurish. You know, there's not really a ton of room for, uh, like, a post-up player in the NBA. Although, you know, maybe he could be, like, a, a Clint Capella type. I mean, I, I don't really think that that would be too far-fetched. And, obviously, Clint Capella turned himself into a nice little player. And um, I don't really see why uh, Azubuki can't do similar. So, um I don't uh, – I, I expect him to be back. You know, I think the statements that he made and, and some of the statements that, uh, you know, people around the program made made it seem like he's just going to get feedback. But I, I wouldn't blame him at all if, if he decided to, to leave and get a jump start on getting paid. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. All right, so – so obviously, we we all expect Yudoka to be back. So let's let's talk more about the guys that that at this point are going to be gone. Um, obviously, you know we have uh, Devonte gone and Svi gone, graduating. Uh, Clay Young gone, obviously. Um, but but the two guys that, um, that that went ahead and declared that didn't necessarily have to would be Malik Newman, and then LeGerald Vick. Both have indicated that they're going to sign with agents. Malik Newman, I don't think was much of a surprise. Were you guys surprised at all about Vic declaring? Um, and, I mean, which which one are you, or do, do you see those guys being successful, whether it's in the NBA or going overseas to play? Um, I think I could see, you know, both of them being successful, to be honest with you. Uh, definitely not surprised that Newman declared. I think that was always kind of the plan. Um, you know, this is his, if you count his retro year, uh, this is his third season. In college basketball, you don't really see that too often from guys who are top 10 prospects out of high school, kind of regardless of how their game translates to the pros. Um, the issue with Newman, obviously, is he's not the biggest guy in the world. Um, he's listed at 6'3". That's probably about right, but he doesn't have, like, a huge wingspan or anything like that. So, um, And he, he doesn't really seem to be inclined to play the point guard. So. Six three shooting guards. Uh, there aren't a ton of them in the NBA, so I'm a little worried uh, from that standpoint. Um, he defended a lot better towards the middle and end of the season, which you never know. Um, showed a willingness to go rebound, uh, which I like, but doesn't really have a ton of playmaking ability and doesn't really add much other than his shooting. So I think he's probably going to be like a, a tweener guy or he's kind of bouncing up and down in the G League and, and maybe goes over and has a nice Keith Langford-type career in Europe, which, uh, you know, Keith Langford at NBA offers that he turned down because he was making more money in Europe, you know. So it, it, there could be worse uh, careers. Um, as for Vic, you know, he's kind of uh, the opposite of Newman in a lot of ways where he's got that kind of classic – NBA, you know, two guard, two guard body, or he's six five. He, you know, has a really good shooting stroke. Streaky, obviously, but when he's on, you know, you can, you can see him being like a three and D type uh, wing in the NBA. Um, 
his on-ball defense isn't there yet, but he's got the length and the wingspan and the potential where you could potentially see a team, you know, gambling on him and, and maybe um, bringing him in and, and seeing if they can develop him and turn him into a, even like an off-the-bench guy, like a, a Kelly Oubre type or something like that. Um, I don't really see him having much of a career in the NBA either, um, but I do think that if there is a, a coach who can maybe get through to him and uh, improve that on-ball defense and off-ball defense that, you know, maybe he, he could latch on at the end of the bench or maybe latch on in, in a European league as well, which, again, you know, there's a lot worse ways to, to spend your 20s than, you know, living in, like, Italy or something like that and playing basketball for a living. True. Yeah, I think uh, I, I, going back to the, the first point about it for surprised, uh, I mean, no, I was not surprised with Newman, and I really wasn't that surprised with Dick either, um, mainly just because, you know, it seemed like he and, and Self were never really on the same page. I don't think it's like some people were comparing it to a, you know, a Brandon Green situation. I'm not sure if, if that was it, but it just seems like, uh, you know, but Gerald kind of, he knows – what he is, kind of what what he wants to do as a player. I think he thought that another year wasn't going to make that much of a difference. And and yeah, I mean, there's, he's probably not an NBA guy for ten, twelve years, but there's nothing wrong with going over to Spain and and making good money. And he's athletic enough that teams, it just seems you know, teams are going to keep taking a shot at him because he he can uh, he's lanky, he's got some length, he can jump, and uh, you know. There's there's plenty of ways that his game can fit well to uh, the professional style. Yeah, yeah, I, I I definitely agree. So the one the one question that I want to throw out to you guys, and I actually had uh, I've been asking around to a, a few people about this, but of the four guys that we know for sure are gone, um, which one do you guys think we're gonna miss the most next year? Like which which guy would you look back and say? Man, I really, really wish we had this guy because there's nobody that can do anything like he does. I mean, I, you know, Graham's the obvious choice. You know, I think he was a, a very legitimate Player of the Year candidate. Um, and even with the guys coming in on the perimeter, you know, I really like Charlie Moore. Uh, Quentin Grimes is supposed to be a you know potential lottery pick next year. Um, Devin Dotson, I, I've heard good things about as well. I mean, obviously, I don't follow recruiting, so I'm just going on what people are saying with those two, but, um, you know, even with that coming in, just having a, a guy with his experience and, and his ability to shoot the ball and his sense of the big moment um, and his, his ability to defend when, to defend when he's not playing uh, 40 minutes uh, every game and, and having to handle the ball every possession. Um, I think that's a pretty obvious choice, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, I, I am very high on Azubuki, but, I think when you got guys like Dietrich Lawson coming in and uh, Silvio De Sosa, um, if he's back, I guess maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But uh, and then David McCormick, um, I think there's enough enough depth uh, to replace him. But uh, replacing a guy like like Devontae Graham is going to be really tough. Yeah, it seems like one of those situations where you look at it in the roster and like, oh, you know, you'll have two other point guards, but trying to ask uh, Dotson, no matter how highly he's he's recruited as a prospect or even Charlie Moore to do what Devontae did and fill those shoes uh, is, is a pretty tall order. I mean, just think about how, what everyone thought, you know, as, as polished and as talented as a, as a guard as Devontae was after his junior year. I mean, 
people were were basically thought that you know it was going to be a clear drop off from Frank and the season that Frank put up, and so it's just you know there's the other guys that can can run the point and can get five assists, but I don't know if there's anyone who can pass quite like Devonte did, who is going to be the you know the vocal leader on a team that didn't have many of those vocal leaders, um, and then just you know Devonte didn't always have great shooting games down the stretch, and I think fatigue had to be part of it even if he disagrees but he he uh hit plenty of of clutch shots shots in the last you know half of the season on his own i mean think back to the texas tech game on the road and how he put that team on the back and i don't know if there's either of these point guards i don't think you can ask them to put the team on the back uh the way that Devonte put this team on his back for you know two-thirds of the season at least yeah i mean i, I think just could defensively Devontae, you know, jumps up there because I don't think any of those other guys really had, like, the defensive chops that that, that he did. But um, if, if we're talking about, like, what piece do I think is missing from next year's team, I think Newman's the guy that jumps out for me because, you know, we've we've talked about the guys coming in and the, kind of the big knock is that there's none of them that are that are – you know, super efficient at at, make, at making their own shot and shooting from outside. And Newman, especially in the second half of the season, really kind of showed that ability to take over when he needed to. Now, obviously, some of that was, you know, Devontae Graham, like, letting him know it was fine to go ahead for him to do it. Um, but he had that ability to take over. Um, you know, he has the outside shot. I, I think that's probably what we're going to be missing next year is the guy that is able to, you know, put the team on his shoulders make clutch shots um, consistently, which, you know, we we can talk about the reasons why Devontae struggled towards the end of the season. Um, and, and I think a bunch of different people would have a bunch of different opinions on that. But the fact is he wasn't as consistent at the end of the year as, as a guy like Malik was. Um, and, you know, going into next year, I mean, Newman is kind of on an upward trajectory uh, where as much as Devontae was giving us, you know, he had, he had kind of gotten to the point where he was at his peak. Um, you know, I mean, that, that happens a lot with seniors. But, um, you know, I also think just if I'm looking forward to next year, like if, if I had to pick one of those guys that I could just put on the next year's team, I think the guy that kind of fills the hole that we the holes that we have would be a guy like Malik Newman um, with, with Devontae Graham being a close second. So, all right, let's go ahead and move on. Um, I think I'm done talking about the guys that, you know, are gone at this point. Um Obviously, the big news to break right after the season was the FBI investigation and Kansas being named um, by by the federal investigation as a quote-unquote victim of the actions of uh, Adidas and, and all their representatives. Um, first question, because I, I know that there was a lot of flack for, um, on, on Twitter for Bill Self and for Kansas about referring to themselves as a victim in this case. Um, one, do you think that that's a fair criticism um, or, you know, Bill Self using the same terminology that that uh, the FBI used, especially since there's no evidence at this point that, that Kansas was actively involved in this this behavior? Um, do you think that that's fine for them to go ahead and, and, and kind of declare themselves to be or, I guess, go along with the declaration of someone else that they were victims in this case? Well, I, I mean, obviously the people who are, you know, making fun of them or whatever are people who don't really kind of understand the, you know, the law and the wording that people have to put into these uh, indictments and complaints and stuff. So uh, I don't really blame people for, like, 
you know, poo-pooing Kansas for copying the language. And I don't really blame Kansas for copying the language. You know, it just is what it is. Right. Um, I do think that, um, you know, to, to go beyond that a little bit, the odds that uh, no one knew what was going on uh, is probably pretty slim. I mean, it, it, that's just the way that things go. And, and maybe they didn't know as far as specific guys. I mean, I, I really doubt that um, Bill Self or anyone at Kansas, you know, talked to anyone at Adidas and was like, hey, we need a big man, you know, see what you can do type deal. Uh, like, and, like is like is rumored with you know Sean Miller and and obviously happened with Rick Pitino and stuff. And sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I was gonna say I, I want to jump in there because I think I think everybody can agree that basically anybody who's involved with college basketball knows that this kind of stuff happens in college basketball. The problem is if you were to you know say that that happens and then require such a high level of proof that you know this person didn't receive any payments, you're never going to recruit anybody. Um, you know, your, your program is going to be in shambles because it's just impossible to know beforehand which guys have taken payments until information like this comes out. And so, so I, I think it's unfair to try to hold Bill Self to a standard of, well, he should have known that these guys were taking payments when they were actively concealing it from him, according to what the indictment says. You know, if I, I, I fully believe that if he had known that, you know, Silvio's guardian had taken, you know, payments as he allegedly had um, or, or, or something to that effect. Like if he had any kind of inkling that this had happened with a specific player, that that player would have been held out until they were able to clear it up. You know, there was, there's a lot of speculation that maybe that's why Billy Preston sat as long as he did after the whole car incident, because they were worried about some of the things going on. And uh, you know, like how did he get the car? Well, maybe it was because of some, all this extra money that they were getting or something like this. So um, you know, th there seems to be an indication that if there is a question, he's going to go ahead and hold the guy out until, you know, in, 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 until we're sure. But the fact is that, yeah, you know, most coaches know that this stuff happens in college basketball, but you can't sit everybody out until they're 100% cleared because it's nearly impossible, I think, to find this information until someone is able to uncover it, especially someone that has the kind of ability and, and the subpoena power that, that the FBI does. So, I mean, I, I, I think we're all on the same, the same page there, but if, if you guys have any differing opinions on that, feel, feel free to jump in. My, just my thought on this is that it's unreasonable to hold a, a head coach of, a, of any college basketball program to the standard of, well, they should have known that this was happening because, you know, they, they just are required to know this. So. Right. And, and I mean, a lot of times, you know, I don't know if you saw the report, but there was uh, um, a big thing about how uh, um, what's his face from Duke. Marvin Bagley went from, you know, basically in poverty to, you know, mega rich because Nike started sponsoring uh, his AAU program that was coached by, I think, his dad. Right. And, you know, that that's the way that usually these things happen. I mean, obviously, it's not always the kids' parents coaching the AAU teams, but it'll be, you know, prized recruit X uh, will be playing for an AAU team that maybe isn't great uh, or is unaffiliated with a shoe sponsor, and Nike will come in and uh, today, come into the AAU coach and say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll pay you 500 grand a year to um, – be uh, affiliated with our shoe company and then you know some of that money 
uh, ever so often, you know, finds its way to the player. I mean, that's the way uh, that it's usually done. And, and that's kind of, um, you know, originally when this broke, uh, that's kind of what I thought that all the hubbub was about because that's been going on for, you know, as, as, I mean, since Michael Jordan was around, you know, where uh, the cost of, uh, to, for these shoe companies, you know, paying a uh, hundred grand a year to, you know, all these AAU programs is nothing compared to the potential windfall of getting to sign a, a Kevin Durant or a James Harden or something like that. So it's going to go on, you know, forever. And there's not really going to be any way that the NCAA is going to be able to stop it. So, but, but this is where um, it's people, you know, specifically uh, delivering kids to certain schools, um, I guess is just kind of, the next uh the next step up on the ladder i don't know but yeah i i think that you're right that you know compliance can only do um so much and i think kansas's compliance you know i i made the joke on this podcast earlier this year like they need to get some more lenient compliance people because you know there's a lot of schools that are in like the same um the same bracket if you will as kansas that if they had discovered, you know, this Billy Pressman thing, you know damn well Billy Pressman would have played forty games this year. Right. Um they would have found they would have found a way to get him cleared, but uh Kansas doesn't do that. I mean I think they err on the side of caution uh a lot more than a lot of these other places with these compliance issues. So for that reason too, I'm just not really worried at all that Bill Self is gonna be implicated in this at all. And and, you know, maybe the program well a little bit under the you know hey you should have known x y and z but i don't think that it's going to be uh as bad as people on twitter are, are making it sound right now and i think kyle i'll let you jump in here in just a second but uh you know i think i think if if anyone were able to show me evidence that a ku staffer was involved in any way then i think yes the ncaa should throw the book at him um and it would be well deserved you know like if, if they are in any way involved in this after you know, the fact is, th- there's no reason for a, for a KU coach to be involved in this because this kind of stuff goes on, you know, independently of the college of the colleges all the time. But you know, unless you can show that a Kansas staffer was involved in this or had direct knowledge of this happening, um, which is a very high bar to clear to, you know, show that they actually did know about this. I, I just I don't think it's appropriate, especially given some of the previous NCAA enforcement actions, to hold Kansas as a school and the, the coaching staff responsible for this sort of behavior. So, Kyle, go ahead and jump in. Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I mean that was all. That was all good things. And I guess I'll just kind of starting from the beginning. You know, the talk about victims. Um, you know, a lot of people are questioning why the FBI is even involved in the first place, and um, you know they can't actually charge anybody without someone being a victim. So no one actually thinks that the or that you know these colleges are victims because they're getting superstar talent and that's making a millions of dollars. But for the FBI's purposes, you can't actually have a case if there's no victim. You can't say, oh well, you know this this person you know made a lot of money. This person made a lot of money. Neither of them were victimized from it, but, you know, we're going to look into it anyway. That, you know, that's not a case. So um, you kind of have to use that verbiage if, if you're them, and I guess, too, you following along with it. And I would say, too, about the, the, the coaches knowing, you know, there are – we tend, when this stuff happens, to lump it all together. And, you know, there are – it's much different than, say, Louisville um, with the whole thing with the, with the recruits um, and – prostitutes and everything else like that in their dorm rooms, things that are happening on campus to get 
players to come here versus Miles Bridges' mother meeting with an agent for dinner in a completely different city. You know, like there's if it's happening on your campus and you, one of your assistant coaches are involved, then yes, it is um, pretty naive to think that a head coach has nothing to do with it or has no knowledge of it. But you can't you can't follow the kids along uh, around to wherever they may be for the summer, let alone their parents. And I do think we learn that a lot of this, you know, while the kids, I'm sure, know about it most of the time, there is a lot. You can't follow the parents, let alone the kids. Um, and then to Fetch's point, it just proves how broken the system is when it is legal and perfectly fine for Nike to pay uh, you know, a kid's dad to run an AAU program as much as they want, $100,000, and then just hopefully sign him after that fact and not think that that is going to persuade, you know, where he goes to school, the affiliation with the shoe. So, I mean, I think someone pointed out on a podcast I listened to, someone from uh, one of the shoe companies basically said, hey, as soon as the NCAA doesn't want us involved in grassroots, let us know and we'll not be involved, but that's not going to happen because they want all of our money. Uh, same with all the endorsements or with the apparel deals and all that kind of stuff. It's all about the money. And the NCAA doesn't want to lose those millions of dollars. So um, it's just a whole broken system that, you know, that no matter what this commission for college basketball does uh, and comes out with the recommendations, none of it's really focusing on the root of the problem with paying players. Which, yeah, they have come out with those recommendations. Um, right. One of which included the NCAA should get more involved in those those prep programs and the summer basketball and all of that, which I don't think is realistic um, for them to pony up all that money to do it and kind of, you know, even if they were to generate something to create something. Um, I was listening with to uh, Gary Parrish and, and Matt Norlander on the CBS podcast, and they were you know talking about how, you know, the NCAA could come up with their own events, their own programs. Um, but that's probably still, especially if they're like pairing with, with, you know, USA basketball, which is one of the suggestions from the commission, that's still only going to catch, you know, like the top 50 players at the most. Um, and so you're going to have a lot of guys. I mean, there's thousands of players at tons of camps all over the place. So they're still going to have a bunch of other guys at all these other, you know, events because the, the, the events aren't just going to go away. So, you know, really, the the there's really no way around having so much shoe money involved because you know it's it's here to stay at this point the, the prospect it, it gives them so many more opportunities for even like the low level guys to get seen by mid major coaches or things like that it's just so important right now for a prospect to be able to go to these types of events I just don't see any reasonable way that the NCAA like, can go ahead and get rid of those so the the one last thing um kind of talking about the whole, the whole victim thing i mean the way that the fbi described it is the universities are victims essentially because they are subject to sanctions which would also include not only the vacation of wind vacation of wins or vacating of wins but also would financial penalties in a lot of cases when someone has been found culpable um, you know, and being sanctioned by the NCAA, they have to return postseason money or they have to give up a, cert, a certain amount of money that's associated with the ineligible player. Um, that's really where they kind of get that from is, you know, that, that this happened here. Um, they, they caused the players to defraud the university by certifying that they were eligible. And if it's later that they're declared ineligible, then the university will most likely have to return a bunch of money. And that's where they end up being a victim. 
legally it makes a bunch of sense. Um, you know, obviously there's a bunch of extra money that they get by having a, a lot of players like this. And I, I do think in some cases, you know, it's not as big of an impact. So like if, you know, a guy like Silvio coming probably didn't him individually bring in a ton of money for Kansas just because of the way that Kansas is, but like a, a, a program that gets that one big recruit, you know, that really kind of makes a name for that program at the time. Like I could see where that would have a huge impact and bring in a bunch of money for them. So, you know, even if they're having to return some of this postseason money, they probably still made a whole bunch more money from that guy coming, even if he is later declared ineligible. So, all right. Any other final thoughts on, on the FBI investigation or any of that kind of stuff there? Other than, I guess, um, you know, not directly on that, but what do you guys think? And I mean, we're going to get more information as, as the as the off season goes, I think. Um, but what do you guys think this means for for Silvio next year? I mean, do you think that there's a, an opportunity or a, a likelihood that he's not playing with the team beginning beginning the season? I I think he's going to play. Um, I know that there's some people out there who are saying that he might be done or whatever, and um, I guess they could always, you know be cautious but uh his guardians come out and denied it and i think silvio has come out and denied it as well and um by the time the the criminal stuff works its way through and next season is going to be done so uh there's probably and obviously i mean they could vacate those wins i guess if they play them and stuff so that's always the always the question but um, I think they're probably just going to play him. I don't really think that there's a reason not to at this point, to be honest with you. But um, never know. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it like a like a 75 percent chance that he plays. I think. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this a similar case where there's at least an argument being made similar to Brian Bowen with Louisville that Silvio that most of this was the hand this was done by his guardian at least the handling of the other endorsement which everyone knows or assumes to be allegedly under armor and and getting out of that debt I mean I think it could be another thing where they they spin it either correctly or, or otherwise that it, you know Silvio had no idea that the under armor thing took place the guardian uh, was in charge of all that, and then when Silvio said he actually wanted to go to Kansas, the the Guardian was you know trying to get the money from Adidas to make that payment back. So it's it's all very tricky, uh, and I don't remember the the finite details now. A month later, yeah, so what exactly was in the report, but that's the way I read it. There. Yeah, yeah, where that maybe it's like you you could make the argument. Well, it was all the Guardian. Silvio had no knowledge. He's, you know, clean. He can't prove that he was connected to any of this. Um, and then, you know, kind of go from there. Yeah, the biggest corollary is the Cam Newton situation where, you know, it, it came out essentially that Cam Newton's father took a whole bunch of money without Cam's knowledge. Um, and so they were able to declare him eligible. But one of the, and, and this was one of the points that uh, Parrish and, and, and Norlander brought up was the NCAA went through rule changes after that to – basically take away that loophole where you're not allowed to say, oh, well, it was it was my parent or it was my guardian that did this now and benefits, benefited from it, and I had no idea, without getting some sort of punishment. Now, does that mean that he's declared ineligible forever? Not necessarily. Like, it could be that the, that the NCAA comes through and says, look, we don't have enough to say that he's ineligible. There are some questions surrounding it. You know, you have to sit for eight games or something like that. Um 
I mean, I, I could potentially see something like that happening, but I think really what's going to end up happening here is that there's just not enough information for them to act on at this point. I think when everything finally comes through, there's either going to be so much information that the NCAA decides that, you know, we're just going to wipe the slate clean of all of this and kind of move forward and, you know, set stuff up to, to be better going forward, or there's not going to be enough information coming out that they can verify out of the criminal justice system for them to be able to actually take definitive action. I think either way, there, you know, I, I agree that there's a very good chance that Silvio plays next year. If he's with the team, I think he plays next year. If something happens over the, over the offseason and he ends up leaving for whatever reason, whether that's to go pro because it looks like he's going to have eligibility issues um, or he just decides, you know, he doesn't want to deal with what all is hanging out here anymore, I could potentially see that happening. But if, if he's with the team, I do think he suits up. Um, barring any kind of NCAA, you know, enforcement deal that says, you know, sit so many games and then you're scot-free from now on concerning this. So, all right. Um, any other thoughts about any of that or, um, you know, the the other big news, we can move ahead to kind of the recruiting news that we had slash like looking forward to next year's roster if you guys want. Anything else about FBI or Silvio or any of that? I can't believe I'm saying this, but let's let's talk some recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the main recruiting news, obviously, everyone was kind of holding out for Romeo Langford. I believe he's ranked number five in the in the class coming up. Um, he was kind of the last big guy that everyone was waiting on. He was trying to decide between Indiana, Vanderbilt, and Kansas. Um, Monday night, April 30th, he he did go ahead and decide to stay at Indiana. So that kind of leaves that leaves one opening for Kansas. They are currently pursuing a, a transfer, I believe, from Albany. I, I forget what the guy's name is. Fetch, can you help me out here? Yeah, Jack, uh, I think it's pronounced Cremo. Um, it's, uh, it's Joe. Um, oh, Joe, yeah, Joe. Yeah, I don't know if it's Cremo or Cremo. I really hope it's Cremo because um, <laughs> not only is the dude a sharpshooter, but I'm going to uh, take over all of the game stories with Cremo the Crop uh Headlines and just uh-huh. all of the Cremo puns. Uh, I mean, you already just think about it tonight. We can have there can be a student section. It's the crematory. It's going to be perfect. Um, so yeah, <laughs> let's for, forget Romeo. Let's do whatever we can to get Joe on campus. Oh, I can imagine as well. Thing. You know, we, we we have been saying V for three. I, I can imagine every time he makes a three pointer, it'd be Cremo for three more. So right, you know, all kinds of all kinds of really bad puns like that. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, knowing like like we talked about earlier, knowing what our holds are for next year, um, my understanding of of Cremo, I'm just going to go with Cremo at this point until someone tells me otherwise. Um, knowing what I know about his game, which honestly isn't a whole lot, he does seem to be somewhat of an outside threat. Um, so that would be kind of helpful, um, you know, since we don't have a ton of guys that are definitely going to be lighting it up from outside next year. So. Yeah, according to Je- – I read Jesse Newell's story on him actually right before the podcast, and he was a just over a 45% shooter from three last year um, with fairly decent efficiency numbers. So it sounds like the kid has uh, got a little bit of work to do on, on defense uh, and is not great driving to the lane. But um, the good thing for his is I think with uh, – with Grimes and another year, Marcus Garrett, they're going to have some athletes who can get to the lane, and so having a, a spot up three threat like him could be uh, could be pretty promising. 
So I, I just uh, I just YouTube an interview with him because why do research before the podcast when you do it during <laughs> exactly. the podcast? But uh, I can confirm that it is pronounced Cremo. Awesome. So, um, yeah, that should be interesting. Um, I do hope they get him. Um, he's a career 42% three-point shooter, um, and he shot 46% from three this last year. So, uh, I mean, adding a, a 40% three-point shooter uh, would be pretty pretty nice because if you look at this team, I mean, losing speed, losing Newman, losing Graham, I mean, those are three really good shooters to lose. Um, Vic, obviously, was a really good shooter as well. Um, that's probably their, their one hole next year is they don't really have a, a ton of shooting. And, again, I, I don't really know what Quentin Grimes and what Devin Dotson can add shooting-wise, but uh, Charlie Moore was, like, in the low 30%, um, although he had to take some shots that – uh, we're just kind of hoists at the end of the shot clock type deal for Cal because they didn't really have anybody else other than him. Um, but so there, there's probably going to be a hole in terms of three-point shooting, and uh, Cremo is going to have to come in if, if Kansas doesn't have him. Um, there's probably going to be some open opportunities. I mean, uh, opposing defenses are going to have to help off uh, someone to double Diedrich Lawson or, or double Azubuki or, or double DeSosa the way he's been playing. Um, so that should open up some opportunities for him. And, and like I said, I mean, that's going to be uh, after these last couple of years of, of letting it fl- fly from three, you know, they're probably going to have just one or two guys who can do that this year. And so uh, adding a, a 40% three-point shooter uh, and a guy who shot as many attempts as he has is really going to, paper over some of the flaws uh, that next year's team is going to have. So I think that would be a, a big addition. And honestly, I mean, I said this even before Langford committed to Indiana, but um, I, I think Cremo would be even a, a better addition uh, than Langford, to be honest with you, just because of what he brings shooting-wise. Yeah. I also think that's an interesting point about the three-point shots if we're talking about next year. And you brought up Diedrich Lawson. I remember reading, you know, Bill Self, um talked about uh, about a month ago about how he thinks Diedrich could could shoot about as many threes next year as LeGerald did and having that kind of uh, that big man presence uh, stretched out. I actually looked it up ahead of time. So um, Diedrich in his last year of eligibility with Memphis shot uh, 111 threes. He wasn't great at them. He, he shot 35% the first year. Uh, uh, 27% last year, but I guess the point about the the just the overall uh, you know caliber caliber and and just number of threes. So LeGerald, uh in his last year shot 158 threes, and since uh, even though we were not going to talk about the Villanova game, we keep going back to the Villanova game. I was just curious what that wrinkle of you know Amari Spellman and the ability to have that big guy just step out and even have the the threat of shooting a three. Um, and Spillman, in his last year, while he shot it better than Vic, he shot 150, so only eight less. So if you're thinking that Diedrich is going to shoot about as many threes as LeGerald, even though we know he's not going to be shooting you know, 43% like Spellman did, just having that outside threat of stretching a big man and then still having either Doak in the post and knowing that Diedrich is still back a guy down in the post, I think it's going to be an interesting element uh, where it's obviously still the two big man game, not, you know, four guards like we have been, but still having a little bit of that threat from the big guy. 
Well, I think I think you make a good point too that you know Yedrick's obviously a lot more athletic than Spellman is, so he's going to have that threat to to put the ball on the floor and, and go by a guy, whereas Spellman was just on the perimeter, a catch and shoot guy or, or a guy who could you know maybe make a nice pass or whatever. But so that would add uh, another um, dimension to the offense as well too. So yeah, that's I mean. Oh, and, and, you know, even if you can shoot only, you know, 35% or 33% or whatever, just that threat to make guys come out and, and you know, then you can drive by them or whatever, I think would be another nice addition to the offense as well. All right. So um, one one other thing here. Uh, we've already talked about my question that I was thinking about for on Twitter. And uh, un- un- unfortunately, the only people that have sent in questions on Twitter are the people that are on the podcast right now. So um, we've, we've already gotten to Kyle's obviously because um, he was bringing up the whole cream of the crop puns, lots and lots of fun. Um, and mine was asking about, you know, which guy we're going to miss the most next year. Uh, so let's, let's jump over to yours, Fetch. You asked uh, who had the better career, Frank Mason or Devonte Graham. So I think obviously you have an idea about this, but we're, we're going to let Kyle go ahead and answer first since he didn't ask the question. <laughs> Well, I'm, I will start out by saying that this is going to be um, a fairly biased answer because I've uh, I've I've loved Devonte since he stepped foot as a freshman and was was justifying and, and making excuses for him even when uh, before the big years. But um, I know that I I'll say this for one year and a senior year, I don't think anyone has been able to do what Frank has done in quite a while in a Kansas uniform. But over the course of four, I think I would lean toward Devontae um, just because of, you know, the, the scoring is pretty I, – and I need to look at the all-time numbers. I know they're pretty close. They're both, you know, around the top ten all-time in scoring. Um, Devontae's assist numbers are bigger. His threes are, are a little bit bigger. Um, and then I think just looking at – the defense, while Frank was a really good defender, I do think Devontae might have a little bit of an edge there. Um, so while, you know, this is neck and neck and there's no wrong answer or, or there's a wrong answer maybe, but there's not a bad answer, I think I would lean Devontae. All right, Fetch, I'm going to let you go ahead and go next. Sure, yeah, I actually, um, I actually don't have uh, an answer in mind, to be honest with you. Um, I, I really – uh, I really have no idea. Um, so just just looking at the numbers real quick here, Frank Mason is sixth all-time in scoring in Kansas history with 1,885 uh, career points. Uh, Devontae Graham finished with 1,750, uh, which would rank uh, 13th, just uh, three shy of Kirk Heinrich. Um and I mean, if if they would have played one more game, he probably would have made it into the top ten uh, in KU history as well. He probably would have surpassed Paul Pierce. So, you know, they're they're really neck and neck. Um, I took a look at some other things too, like uh, Devontae Graham's first all time in in career minutes played in the Big Twelve. Frank Mason is third um, in points. Uh, where is it here? Sorry. Uh, points produced per game. They're fifth and sixth in Big 12 history. Like they're just, you know, they're they were joined at the hip when they played, and they're kind of joined at the hip in the record books as well. I mean, there's not really a lot uh, to separate them, to be honest with you. Um, I think Devontae Graham was a little bit better of a passer, 
uh, better shooter, despite Frank Mason shooting like 50% from three as a senior. Mason was obviously, you know, a lot better at getting into the lane and, and finishing at the rim. Um, defensively, I think they were probably equal. Um, I think Graham was better for a longer period of time, uh, but Frank Mason certainly improved on that end of the floor over the course of his career. Um, uh, you know, Frank Mason gets to benefit because he had that second banana uh, in Graham next to him for uh, three years, uh, whereas Graham this year, you know, didn't have Frank Mason, so he had to be out there all the time. Um, but at the same time, you know, Graham benefited by, you know, getting to be the second banana to Frank Mason. So uh, I don't really, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, Frank Mason was obviously national player of the year last year. I think Devontae Graham um, had a really good case for being national player of the year this year. Um, Graham got over the hump and, and made a final four, whereas Mason didn't. Um but that's a that's a team thing, not a an individual thing. So I, that's probably, you know, maybe that is the tiebreaker. You know, maybe that's a tiebreaker, and, and maybe Devontae Graham uh, gets to say that he had a better career because he made a Final Four. But I, I really I, I don't think that there's um, a wrong answer. Um, I just think you know what a what a job by uh, the coaching staff uh, taking kids who are originally uh, you know committed to Towson and Appalachian State. Um, and turning them into each, you know, first team All Americans. Um, yeah, and yeah, obviously, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Towson and Appalachian no, State. Take a shot. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and obviously, you know, what a what a job by those two for you know turning themselves into those type of players. So I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna call it a tie because I don't I don't want to pick uh, between those two for sure. Yeah, the way I think of this, I think this is the same kind of conundrum you had if you were a Lakers fan in the. Uh, you know, early 2000s, um, which one's better, Shaq or Kobe? Um, you know, they obviously both had very, very important contributions, and the program wouldn't have been nearly successful with either of them if, you know, if either of them were missing. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's really hard to come up with a one definitive answer to this. Um, you know, Frank obviously gets the benefit of being the National Player of the Year, whereas Devontae gets the benefit of having gone to the Final Four with the team after Frank left. Um, I think if I'm, you know, if, if I'm thinking about which guy do I want to build a team around more, um, you know, whose contributions I think is more successful in isolation to building a team, I would have to go, probably go with Frank Mason. Um, just the way that his leadership ability of creating his own shot. Um, although <laughs> I say that, you know, I, I, was, I was kind of the big proponent this year, though, of Devontae Graham being the guy, but not in the way that Frank Mason was, you know, getting other people to really shine. I, the one thing I will say is that I think Mason has a better ability to create for himself and therefore is more more directly responsible, I think, for the success that he's had than a guy like Devontae Graham, who in order for him to while he is very successful in his own right he required a lot of help from other guys around him because that was his game was bringing out the best in other people as opposed to, you know, utilizing what other people are bringing to, to highlight his own abilities. So um, the way we typically think of individual players, I think Frank Mason gets the edge just because of his, his stats were just a little bit better. He had the individual awards, you know, he was kind of known sometimes to a fault of, creating for himself and make, you know, making sure that you know, kind of taking over games and doing it all himself. Whereas De Devontae Graham, I think is, is the much more 
what you would want to to kind of help bring a lot of other people along. I could see Devontae Graham having a, a, a decent length NBA career because of the ability for him to kind of play second fiddle, to be able to to be a support guy for, you know, a bunch of superstars on an, on an NBA team, whereas Frank Mason probably isn't going to be as successful um, in trying to create for himself and try to lead a team and be the guy. Um, so, I mean, it really kind of just depends on, on what it is that you value. But the way we traditionally value individual players, I think Frank Mason gets the edge, um, you know, in terms of overall contributions to the team. I think Devontae Graham has, has more staying power that way. So, all right, now, now that I've fully dodged the question. <laughs> yeah, thank um, you guys for putting me on, uh, throwing me out right in front to make an answer and then both kind of copping out of that. I appreciate that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, that, that's, that's the way we roll here, right? That's co-host, uh, co-host, host and co-host uh, perks there. So. <laughs> All right, so um, I don't really have anything else in terms of what I have planned for the night. So um, I think we're, we're about ready to wrap up. I did want to give you guys an opportunity. Any kind of final thoughts on the season? Anything specifically we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about going forward? Um, my only rule on that is no football talk because I really don't want to bring the podcast down. So, so yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll take uh, two quick ones here. Um, first, just to finish up the Graham Mason thing. Um, these are admittedly arbitrary endpoints here, but I, I plugged it into uh, um, Basketball Reference here, and uh, the play index only goes back to, to 92, 93. Um, but the only there's only two players ever in KU history who have averaged 15 points and five assists for a season, and that would be uh, Frank Mason last year and Devontae Graham this year. So again, they're just you know uh, attached to each other at the hip, and, and they're you know definitely worthy of being called you know two of the best 10 or 15 or so players in KU history. So uh, I don't really think that we we need to choose between them. I just thought that it was an interesting question. Um, and my other one, um, I'm going to come out and say that barring something uh, ridiculous with the uh, FBI probe, which I don't really foresee happening, um, I'm going to I'm going to lay my chips on the table, and I think Kansas is going to win the national title next year. Bold, like bold prediction. Yep, calling it calling it right now. Uh, That's going in the show notes. Is just your bold prediction. I'm not going to spoil that for anyone. So <laughs> anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, that's, I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that. I will say, so if we're going on on looking into next year and going on bold predictions, hot takes, this is not really a bold prediction or hot take, but I think that um, I think if we're looking at uh, the guys coming in, not necessarily the guys who, who sat out and transferred, but the freshmen, and I know Fetch doesn't do recruiting, but uh, David McCormick, from the little bit that I have read and seen of him, he seems like the guy who is – probably going to be lost in the shadows of the Lawson twins and Yudoka and Silvio if both of those come back as a freshman. But this seems like the guy, the kind of quintessential big man, Thomas Robinson type, who uh, you don't hear about much his freshman year, but um, his sophomore year, maybe his junior year, if he even stays that long, uh, he's just uh, beast of a guy. I mean, he's 6'10", 290, uh, and just built like, kind of like uh, Deontay uh, Ayton was this year, where he just looked like a, you know, grown 30-year-old man um, from a body standpoint. So, uh, you know, don't don't get upset next year at this time if if he is not averaging 15 and 8, but uh, in two years, I think that's uh, very likely. 
Yeah, I would not be surprised by that at all. And I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and and jump on the bold prediction bandwagon. My bold prediction is that next year we will not see more than five combined minutes from walk-ons. How's that for you? <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's 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 really bold. You guys can, um, you know, keep your your uh, pick your jaws up off the floor. So, no, I mean, honestly, just with how stacked this this team's going to be, you know, there was a lot of a lot of uh, news coming out about. Or there, there was a big hubbub for a little bit about the the free state player that's going to be a prefer a preferred walk on, and you know that's the replacement for Clay Young. I really think it's going to be a replacement for Clay Young, and that he's probably not going to play for the first two years that he's here, um, just kind of be on the end of the bench. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think I don't think there's a really good chance that Sosinski is going to be um, sitting on the bench for us next week or next next season either. Um, he'll probably go back to the football team and and stay there at this point. So. Um, but yeah, counterpoint to counterpoint to that, that to go along with Fetch is that the the team is is so talented, especially in the non-conference season, that the walk-ons actually play quite a bit because instead of only winning by four or five in games that should probably be uh, not that close, they actually are able to build a 15 or 20 point margin and get the guys uh, the walk-ons some extra time at the end of the game. See, but but I think that that won't happen this year because we've got. If I'm if my count is right, we have 11 or 12 guys that you know will have scholarships that theoretically could be in the rotation, and those minutes instead of going to walk-ons, they're going to go to the guys that don't get to play very often that we want to be able to to have you know if we need them later in the season to at least get a few game minutes. So um, I'm not you know walk-ons were kind of a necessity this year just because we didn't have enough scholarship players. We're going to have plenty of scholarship players next year that we can work with and they can get those mop-up minutes to get some sort of experience. So, um, yeah, that, that's why, you know, I don't see it as a bold prediction at all in that, you know, we're going to have very, very low walk-on minutes because those mop-up minutes are going to go to guys that we wish could be playing but just aren't at the top of the rotation. So, All right, any, any other final thoughts before we get out of here for the night, guys? All right, we'll go uh, ahead. And leave. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Fetch? No, I was just saying no. Uh, enjoy football. <laughs> oh, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, Mike and I. So, programming note for you guys: um, Mike and I will be back again, like I said, either later this week or, or sometime next week to talk about football. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on with football. The spring showcase, not not even the spring game, happened this last weekend. Um, there's a lot of hot takes to bring out of that, or or angry, you know, angry. Um, things to say about that so Mike and I have kind of been talking a little bit already um, there's going to be a lot there we will be kind of uh, I think the, the majority of the summer summer season of the podcast kind of like what we did last year where we you know did some throughout the summer um, but we will be doing periodic updates on football talking about football um, Mike is Mike is doing a big push on the site right now um, gearing up for a kind of a, a hundred days countdown for the football season so Part of that's going to be us talking regularly on the podcast about that. So there will be plenty of football content content this summer. Not really sure there's enough excitement in the football program to really warrant all of that. But it, but at least you know you can't you can't complain about not getting the information about the football team. So we will have all that for you guys as usual. Um, you know definitely give us your your guys feedback. You can contact us on Twitter at Rock Chalk Talk. Um, you can contact any of us three personally on Twitter as well. On, on, on the website, of course, um, 
we have a, our, our email address. It's at, I'm sorry, it's rctsbn at gmail.com. That's rockchalktalkespionation at gmail.com. Um, we, we definitely want to hear from you guys. Find us on iTunes, rate us, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Give us five stars. We, we really, really would appreciate that. So, um, you know, we are, I believe we are the only Jayhawk podcast that talks about all of the, the KU sports and all of the KU news. Um, most, most of the other ones concentrate on either football and basketball or just basketball. So, um, I believe we're the only, the only KU podcast out there that will talk to you about volleyball or baseball or, or softball. Um, we will have some of those updates kind of as they're warranted throughout the, the summer as well. But, uh, this has been the, the season finale, uh, wrapping up the basketball season. Um, you know, like, like I said, we will still have occasional episodes throughout the summer. They just won't be on the same weekly or bi-weekly schedule that you're used to as as consistently. But we want to thank you guys for all listening to us throughout this season. It's been a great second season for the podcast. We're, we are already gearing up and thinking of ways we can make it make it better for you guys for next season. And, and obviously, while, while football won't be as entertaining, I think, or as joyous as we were hoping it would be, we will still be here to break it all down for you, to give you guys an outlet, to complain, to be upset you know to, to know about the important issues that are still happening and then of course we're all eagerly anticipating the beginning of the next basketball season so um fetch and, and kyle thanks again for joining me um thanks again to you guys all for listening and we will catch you guys next time on the rock chalk talk podcast Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.